Welcome to the Venture Church Podcast. This sermon was taken from the life of the church. For more messages like this, please see our website, www.venturechurch.co.za. We hope you enjoy this message. Amen. I really felt the ministry this morning was incredibly important and significant. If you received, if you felt God's impartation to you, I encourage you to prayerfully hang on to it. Because guess what? Tomorrow, even tonight, it will be tested. Stand firm in faith. It's that wonderful scripture in Isaiah, I think it's nine, that says, if you don't stand by faith, you won't stand at all. Stand by faith. If you didn't feel anything, it means nothing. God is faithful. Stand faithfully on his promise. Amen? I'm looking forward to there being not enough time to preach next week because of how many testimonies there are going to be of God bringing deliverance, setting free, and establishing the things that he's already spoken. Amen. For many people today, the idea of hell feels archaic, you know, ancient, old, out of date. And it it really doesn't fit into their understanding of the world and how existence is. And yet for us believers, Christians, those who have put our faith in Jesus, when we read our Bibles, there it is over and over and over again. It's a reality that is hard to get away from. So I think most of us end up kind of just not thinking about it. I'm choosing not to think about that. It's unpleasant. I don't understand it. I don't see how it fits in. So I'm just going to ignore it, which is difficult when it pops up again in your reading. And it's like, okay, let me just keep going. Hopefully it makes some sense later on. But we need to embrace that. So despite the cultural, temporal, geographical distance of us from the people that were living at the time that the Bible was written, despite those differences, there's more similarities between us and them than we care to admit. And because of that, The reality that the Bible speaks of in hell is an important thing. So we need to seriously ask the question, what the hell? Or to put it in better English, what is hell? So we're going to start by turning to Luke 16. And I want to read... uh, read a chunk of this to you from verse 19. Luke 16 from verse 19 through to the end of the chapter. This is one of Jesus's parables and it addresses this issue of what is hell. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in cool water and put it on my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you can't, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this terrible place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone rises from the dead and goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Note first, this is a parable. For many years, I wasn't, I wasn't sure, wasn't convinced of that. But this is a parable. How do I know? Mostly because of the number of caricatures there are in here. So let's just start at the, t at the top of that uh, to see some of the caricatures I'm talking about. There was a rich man. How does, and it emphasizes it. He was dressed in purple and fine linen and he lived in luxury every day. He's repeating this image of wealth and excess and abundance. But he doesn't have a name. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. This guy immediately is shown to have significance because he is named. But again, lots of caricature. He was covered with sores and he longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even, and this is like, I don't want to use a food analogy, but this is like the ultimate insult. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. Pretty gross but they both die. It's also important to, when, it's also important to realize it talks nothing about who they were or what they had done, only about their circumstances. Important, because I have heard people use this as, uh, as an excuse to say, well, the rich man ended up in hell because he was rich and he didn't do this. That's got nothing to do with this parable. There is just massive contrast. And in a real sense, he's contrasting the rich man and Lazarus the way he does with the rich man going to hell and Lazarus going to Abraham's side. He's doing that to culturally offend the Jews who believed that wealth was a, a sign of God's blessing. And Jesus is deliberately turning that on its head. But he's doing it to highlight the point of the parable. 
which is about what heaven and hell, what uh, Shale and Hades and Abraham's side are like. It's quite dangerous because I've heard a number of doctrines derived from this parable, and it's not the point of a parable to establish doctrine. It's to illustrate reality. So remember that. This parable is about illustrating reality. So the rich man and Lazarus, they both die. One is taken to a place of torment, and one is taken to a place of comfort. So what are the important elements of this parable? First of all, part of the torment seems to be that the rich man can see Lazarus being comforted. So part of the torment is realizing that there, is, that there was another option, a real other option. The second one is that there can be no transition. It makes me laugh when we, when we read it just now. I nearly giggled to myself, but that's because I've read it a few times recently. That Abraham says, nobody can come from us to you. Yeah, like anybody wants to. I think there's a truth in there that uh, there's, there's a hint of in this parable. And that is that compassion remains. In other words, not that Lazarus would want to go to Hades, go to hell, but that he still cared enough and was sad enough that he would want to try and do what the rich man asked him to. That is what the rich man asked of Abraham is the most insignificantly trivial piece of uh, relief, minute relief from extreme torment. Just one drip of water off his little pinky on the tip of my tongue. Oh, please, if only I could have that. It highlights the intensity, the reality of the torment that, rich, that the rich man was going. Notice also, the rich man doesn't speak to Lazarus. He speaks to Abraham. And again, Abraham, what is Abraham's side? Or as the old King James used to say, Abraham's bosom made him sound very effeminate in modern uh, in modern parlance, but at Abraham's side, how the NIV translates it, I like that. He talks to Abraham, why? Because it's a parable. He's using picture language to make plain a spiritual reality. He's talking to Abraham as the father of faith. And that's how Abraham in the parable replies. Abraham says, uh, he says to Abraham, please will you get Lazarus to do this for me? Abraham says, There's a, it's impossible for us to cross over to you and for you to cross over to us because guess, guess which way the exodus would go? And uh, Abraham says, it's impossible. The guy, then, uh, the guy then's the rich man then says, okay, how about this? In comparative, utter 
selflessness, he says, okay, I've got five brothers. I don't want them to come here. Can't you send Lazarus back to warn them of this reality? This for me is probably the most shocking part of this parable. And it's really the, the most important point that Jesus is making. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the testimony of God already. If they don't believe that, they're not going to believe anything. Even if somebody is raised from the dead. And of course, Jesus knows what is going to happen to him. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think, why, why do some people not believe in Jesus? Because if you don't believe the revelation of God, you won't even believe if somebody has been raised from the dead. So, what are the major points of the parable? Our eternal destiny is defined in this life. In other words, after this life. Last week we talked about life after death. One of the things about life after death, and funnily enough, I was, um, I was listening to listening, yeah, some podcasts on this over the last couple of weeks. And somebody was saying, well, where in the scripture does it say that there's no chance for people to repent after life? Well, this is one of the realities that Jesus is bringing out in this parable is that once we have died, our decisions, our trajectory for eternity has been set. That's the declaration of Abraham. If you're that side, you can't get on this. If you're on that side, you can't get to that side. It is terrible in the literal and absolute sense for those who end in Hades. But it should as much be an encouragement for those who know that their trajectory is to God. Why? Because, and I've heard this also many times over the years. Oh, what happens? If I'm living in heaven, I know what kind of person I am. <laughs> if I'm living in heaven, I'm going to muck up. I'm going to get in trouble and I'm going to be thrown out of heaven. Well, this scripture also says that there will be a, the recreation work of the resurrection in us, I'm extrapolating a bit, is such that it enables us to do what Paul at the end of Romans 7 says we cannot do in this body. Woe is unto me. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. And if I can add an appendix in the resurrection. So our eternal destiny is defined in this life alone. Secondly, there is no afterlife transition from one side to the other. I mentioned that already. Thirdly, the resurrection is not enough without repentance. That's a complete change of attitude and uh, declaration of God's, I'm going to use the word judgment because I'm going to use it again just now, of God's judging who we are and faith towards God. Just as a throwaway aside here, it takes faith to repent honestly. Just let that sink in for a while. It takes faith to repent honestly. Most criminals 
are sorry and will confess how sorry they are after they've been caught. It takes faith to repent before God and man, humanity, someone else, when we haven't been caught. Moving on. The rich man's only communication was with Abraham, representing the law that he already knew. So let's turn briefly to what we can know about the nature of hell. Well, there's a couple of scriptures, Jude 6 and Revelation 20, verse 13, describe hell as a prison. And it's a prison separating us from God. But it's also temporary. That's the Revelation scripture. It's temporary. Hell, Hades, is temporary. Why? Because that Revelation 20, verse 13 says, and hell was thrown into the lake of fire. So there is a, te- just as I was talking last week, that there's a temporariness to us in heaven with the Lord, <laughs> waiting for the resurrection. There is a temporariness to hell, also waiting for the same judgment for an eternal state. So hell is a prison. Some of the language we looked at briefly last week, in the Old Testament it uses the word sheol, which really is the place of shadows, the grave, inactivity, darkness, very much talking about the, the physical thing. It was it, uh, the, the revelation, the, 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 the detail of what it meant grew throughout the Old Testament. And then by the time that uh, we get the New Testament, they're talking about this Greek word Hades, which was a development of this idea of Sheol, but still the idea of the place of death. And that's the picture that Jesus paints in the parable that we just read. So how then do we get to this idea, which is common in most of our minds, of hell is about the lake of fire and burning and this and that. And Where did that idea come from? Well, we read about it in our New Testaments. Well, we do if you read Greek. Because unfortunately, most of our translations, um, there are several words, the two biggest being Hades, we've already talked about, and now this one, Gehenna. Gehenna comes, is, is a Greek transliteration of Hebrew, and the Hebrew, Gen Hinnom, means the Valley of Hinnom. So that spot, the Valley of Hinnom, which is outside uh, Jerusalem to the east, was the border between Judah in Jerusalem and Benjamin. So it was a border, but it had become the rubbish dump. And the way they dealt with rubbish was they burnt it. So the idea of hell became associated with this place of rubbish and burning. And hell became this idea of burning. In the Middle Ages, where most people were illiterate, they could not read at all, most most people, so they couldn't read their Bible for themselves. There was a move 
to try and bring the reality of the gospel to people using the latest cutting-edge technology of the day, known as plays. And during the Middle Ages, there were these mystery plays, as they were called, where the reality of heaven and hell was played out. And so, just like Jesus did, as we read in Luke 16, they caricatured hell and heaven. And they took some of the most uh, vivid biblical images, like the burning valley of Hinnom, and they used this as the example of a real hell to really be avoided. And there's a good lesson in this for us because if the focus remains on the form of technology, plays in that case, then we can lose the relevance of the message. And that's what happened. These um, uh, mystery plays depicting heaven and hell in the Gospels became outdated. And instead of updating them, They stuck with the form and lost the message. So much so that during the massive uh, expansion of knowledge in the last uh, kind of five, six hundred years, scientific progress, all these other areas where we've grown so dramatically, those things looked increasingly like old superstition Things to be, they didn't fit in our worldview. And when you and I went to school, or are at school, we were taught using this modern scientific method. So hell seems to not fit. And it's awkward. So we don't generally talk about it. But the truth is that hell is as real as heaven. And I'm super excited to talk about heaven next week. But we have to acknowledge the reality, the biblical reality of hell before we look at the biblical reality of heaven. So hell is as real as heaven. I'm going to try and sum up what hell, the nature of hell, what it means. Hell is utterly impersonal, utterly lonely, and utterly depressing. There's a misconception amongst many of us today, often because we're introverts, oh, I don't mind the idea of going to hell, because at least I'll get some peace and quiet. So part of our problem is that we can't conceive of a reality that is as completely disconnected from any ability to have any kind of relational interaction. Why? Because even if we're introverts, there are people, particularly here in a city, but that this truth is a reality anyway. So we think, oh no, health can't be too bad. I was thinking about uh, Cliff Richard this morning in his song, which was probably written before I was born, Why Does the Devil Have All the Good Music? And the irony is, when you listen to the song, you realize he's saying, the devil doesn't have all the good music. (laughs) Just as an aside. 
but he highlights and he sums up, in a sense, this misconception. Oh, hell isn't so bad. I, wanna, I mean, I saw a, uh, I think I saw a short on YouTube last week with a, a picture of a, uh, a pretty woman saying, if this woman's the devil, then I want to go to hell. First of all, hell is not the devil's. Hevel, he, start again. Hell is God's. He sends the devil to hell. It is God's place of judgment, and that's why it's place of torment. So there is no good-looking, if you're a guy, female, or guy, if you're a female, devil to enjoy and look up. There is nothing possibly enjoyable in hell. It is utterly, always, absolutely terrible, impersonal, and I believe that that's most of what the torment, because it never talks about the torment beyond this picture of fire. Even the lake of fire in Revelation picks up on that idea of the torment is that intense. But I believe that the, the intensity of the torment comes from that complete absence of ability for any kind of relational interaction. Why? Because we were created to relate to a living, loving God. And hell ultimately is about absolute separation from God. Also, people don't believe that if there's anything good that happens in life, it comes from Jesus. Beautiful paraphrase of James. Every good and perfect gift is from the Father of the stars in whom there's no variableness or shifting shadow of change. When our connection to the author of all that is good is broken, none of us can conceive how bad it is. The psalmists pick up on the providence of God. What does providence mean? It means that God provides for all of his creation, good and evil. Hell is essential because of God's justice. In other words, if God is going to put all things to right, he has to judge evil. Or, as it's put another way, sin with a capital S. What do I mean by that? There is sin. The principle of sin is sometimes called and there are sins which we commit that follow the pattern of sin with a capital S. God doesn't just want to, or God won't just judge sins. He will judge sin. God's plan is to, and I'm preempting next week, but God's plan is to achieve what we as a species utterly mucked up in the garden. We're not going back to the garden. We're going forward to the maturity of the garden. And for that to happen, God has to judge and remove all that has broken that plan. 
That is, the devil, his angels, and those who have chosen to follow that way. Matthew 25 verse 41 tells us that hell was not created for humans. Matthew 25 41, it was created for the devil and his angels. And we see in Revelation 20, God fulfilling that promise. Only those who willfully choose to go there are also sent to hell, thrown into the lake of fire. What do I mean by willfully choose? I mean willfully choose to go their own way. There is a witness in all of our hearts, even if we don't know the the, the, the intimate personal reality of Jesus, but there is a witness in all of our hearts that we are God's and that there is absolute right and absolute wrong. When we willfully choose to embrace what I'm saying is absolute wrong, sin, evil, we choose deliberately that our destiny will be hell. The devil is an incredibly good liar and he will try and deceive us that hell isn't so bad. I've already mentioned a little bit about that. But the, the bottom line of Luke 16, the parable we started with, is hell is that bad. It is literally inconceivably worse than you can think. And that it is real, and it is really to be avoided. So enough, enough depressing stuff. But if we don't know the reality that hell is as real as heaven, we won't be able to embrace the reality of heaven and we won't live with this, with this reality, <laughs> again, to use the word, that when we talk to people who are willfully sinning, their destiny is this terrible, awesome, terrifying place that embodies the judgment of God. It is permanent separation from God because he is the source of all that is good. We've also seen that hell is a current temporary place before the final judgment. And after that, the lake of fire, which is foreshadowed in Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom, the burning rubbish heap. Hell is essential to demonstrate the reality of God's justice and judgment and the destructiveness of sin. If sin is just a sociological, psychological problem, bad behavior, then all we need is a little bit of attitude adjustment and everything will be fine. Sin has one solution. It needs to be killed, judged, and literally sent to hell. Luckily, hell is not the whole story. So can I ask you, as I challenge, as I finish and challenge you, can you be honest with yourself? What is the trajectory of your life? 
Is it a consistency of faith towards God? I'm not talking about uh, being perfect. I'm talking about when you face challenge, even if you're finding that you have been in a season where you just can't break through something. Is there a trajectory that you keep going back to God? God does want us to be free. Otherwise, the ministry this morning was meaningless. But I'm saying it's not how free we are, as in, oh, tick that, tick that, oh, yes, I'm... It's about what is your consistent trajectory. I like that word trajectory because it's not about the destination. It's about where you're going. Is there a consistency in your trajectory towards God? Not in being perfect, towards God. Because the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That well-worn phrase. A good intention is not good enough. A prayer to God is. What's the trajectory of your life? God's interested in our repentance and faith in Him, not our attempts to earn His favor in other ways. So hell is full of people who lived like they knew better than the Lord. Examine your heart. Is there any element of truth in that. If there is, let's run to our Father who absolutely bunked the, uh, the cultural thing in the, uh, the, the normal culture in the parable of the prodigal son and ran out to meet his returning repentant son. The Father won't and can't do that unless we're prepared to get on that trajectory, that road back to Him. There's a real hell to be avoided and a real heaven to be gained. Do you know your destiny? Can I ask you to stand to lead us in prayer in response to all of this? Can I ask you to close your eyes so you can do business with God? Almighty God, you who do hold all of creation to account, us, the devil, all who have chosen to believe in ourselves rather than believe in you, Lord, we ask you to forgive us where we have slipped into that habit, where we slipped into that attitude. And to involve you in every part of our lives as Savior and Lord. If you've been listening to this and you're realizing that your trajectory is actually towards this terrible place, hell, you can change that trajectory right now. Right now. And this is what's one of the most amazing, incredible things about the good news in Jesus. And that is with heartfelt, faith-filled honesty. Repenting, turning away from self-sufficiency and sin, and putting faith in God, in Jesus Christ, as Savior from your sin, 
and Lord of your life going forward. If that's where you're at, I'd like to pray with you. But I'd love to know who you are. Everyone's eyes closed. If that's you, do you just want to let me know by popping your hand up just so that I can pray with you? Lord Jesus, thank you that you, you take us exactly where we're at. And so we repent of our sin and we believe in Jesus who paid the price for our sin. We believe in Jesus who was raised and is now seated at your right hand, almighty God. As Lord of lords and King of kings, we put our faith in him. We we are delighted by that to have changed our eternal destiny from the road to hell to living in the kingdom. So we receive you, Lord Jesus, Savior and Lord. And then, Father, I want to pray for each one of us as we have opportunity this week. May we share your love which overcomes all fear and draws and drew us to you with those that we have the opportunity of speaking to. Strengthen us in it. Give us the words that they may hear there's a real hell to avoid and a real heaven to gain. So we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. We would love to know how this message spoke to you. Please connect with us through our website, www.venturechurch.co.za or through our various social channels.